Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Failure in today's society. If you aren't as perfect as the internet makes you think you should be, you have already failed. Like you're comparing yourself to a totally different person. You want a lasting fireplace kind of fire. You don't want a firework. Fireworks fade very, very quickly. So what's standing after it fades? And that's the easier way to tell. Is this love? The more you expand your universe, the more you're expanding what you're attracted to and what attracts to you. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Welcome to today's episode of the Elevate podcast. Today's guest is an author. To call writing a passion would be an understatement. Raised in Maryland, USA, she was always one to seek creative endeavors. In grade school, she would be writing full TV scripts, put on plays for her family, and keep journals as a form of self-expression. She went off to University of Central Florida at the age of 17 to study filmmaking with a concentration in screenwriting. She graduated three years later and had the desire to hit the ground running in the entertainment industry. And like many, that found her moving to Los Angeles. Just 10 days after graduating college, she found that her left brain took over and she landed the role of producer for broadcast commercials. Despite the fact that she spent her days producing, she found that her love of writing never faded. After nearly a decade of working in commercials, feature films, and movie trailers, she found her way into the print medium. In 2020, she began her foray into authorship and notably wrote her book, Shit Adults Never Taught Us, in just six weeks. Currently still living in Los Angeles with her dog, Kingston, she does travel and pack a bag around the world wherever she can. When she's home, her hobbies include hiking and consuming all the coffee, cheese, and pasta within reach. Hello and welcome, Natasha. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, doing really well. It's so great to be able to connect with you from different ends of the earth. So it's Tuesday morning here in Singapore, and you are joining me live from Los Angeles on a Monday evening. Still stuck on Monday night. <laughs> no, I'm very jealous. You get to be in the future. We've been talking a little bit online, so it's so great to finally meet you virtually, but still great to meet you. I'm I here. mean, virtually is how we all meet now, right? <laughs> so, so true. I'm here to talk to you about your exciting new book, uh, which is disguised as a self-help book. This mini memoir uses personal experiences, including some epic failures to guide you through the most perplexing moments in life. The book's title, which I love, Shit Adults Never Taught Us, covers a lot of topics, including career strategies, mental health, emotional quandaries, and navigating all the WTF questions and moments of adulthood. So Natasha, should we dive in? I think that's the only way to go. We have to dive in. Yeah. 
So this is your very first book and tell us how easy or challenging it was for you to the writing process, because as I mentioned in the intro, you sort of, I don't, is that a record to write a book in six weeks? It's my record. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it's a, if it's a record. Um, challenging isn't the right word for writing for me because I was so anxious. It was during quarantine. I'd watched all of the internet videos and everything that the world had to, off, had to offer. And when I, uh, I went through a lot of changes in my life during a very short amount of time. And I just like the lessons just started spewing out and I was like, I don't know what this is, but I have to write to get it out of my head because it was like these life lessons I had learned. And I just needed to write them down somewhere. And because of that, it was like word vomiting onto a page. Like I couldn't stop. And then it, turned into, well, maybe this is a blog and I don't know if it's a blog because the internet has like a lot of those. And I don't know if it's like, I don't know what it was. And someone approached me with the idea of a book. And I said that that would be really cool. I brought it to publishers. There was a lot of like, all right, well, you need to do five years of this, this, and this. And that was not of interest to me. I just wanted it out in the world. And I mean, at one point I even considered just putting it up for free. I was like, this word document could just be in the world on the internet, but it would just get lost. And so then it got structured and formulated and edited and re-edited and re-edited and um, proofread. And then, and then it became a book. And from the time I wrote it to the time it hit shelves was about six to seven months. Okay, so it sounds like the actual process of editing and publishing was longer than the writing process. That was sort of a natural process for you. The process of editing for me was um, hard, but the process of marketing it was like harder. The process of marketing a book no one talks to you about. You just think, oh, the hard part's writing. Oh, that's the easy part. The hard part's everything that goes after it. You're, you're six months or maybe a year ahead of me. I'm, I'm in the process of getting my first book edited. So this is really oh exciting goodness. for me to hear. Yeah, I'm really, I am nervous and really anxious to even say that out loud. But I'm so far down the line now that I have to start articulating that it is going to be a reality. So I, I think it's, it's great to have you and introduce me to what's coming next. But as you say, that there is no manual and all parents say this whenever they've handed their first baby even. There are books, obviously, and parenting guides when children are younger, but there are no, there's no real handbook or manual for one size fits all. Everyone's journey is different and raising children is different. But I thought this help guide for parents, rightly, as you so specifically have decided to look at, points out the gaps that are not actually taught formally and the things that you have to learn on the fly when you're faced with certain problems from something as mundane but important as getting insurance to, to loss and grief. So your, your range of topics, as I said earlier, is absolutely brilliant. It's so wide. Why was why did you find that this book was something, A, that you, like you said, you had a verbal vomiting session that was just so important for you to regurgitate all this information out but why, what was it behind that? Was there an inspiration for you? What was it like for you to what was it cathartic because of a personal experience? When I started writing the book, I almost felt like I was like apologizing to people in my life being like, I had fantastic teachers. I had an incredible upbringing. My parents were amazing, but you can't teach everybody everything. Technology is constantly evolving. The world is constantly changing. So I mean, honestly, by the time I published the book, things are out of date. Like things move so quickly in our world that what I was taught 
And the the book, I don't know if you've gotten into this in the intro, but the book is divided into four sections. So it's 98 chapters, which always sounds so scary to people, and I promise you it's not. But it's 98 quick chapters. Each chapter is about three pages or less. And it's just the vital information written in like a funny, witty, quick way, not like the boring textbook kind of way. And it's divided into four sections, which are career and money, relationship, mind, and then life. And so the career and money section is the stuff we probably like most definitely learned in school. Like all the stuff that was too boring or irrelevant to our teenage lives that we just ignored them. And it's like taxes uh, for the people in the US, 401ks, uh, negotiating a salary or raise, negotiating your bills, everything that encompasses money. And then also the things that encompass career, like side hustles, knowing when to leave a job. Um, and then you get into relationships and that is the entire lifespan of a relationship from having courage to fall in love to surviving a breakup and everything in between, including the good times and figuring out what's real and what's not. And then also navigating fights and also other relationships like, um, making friends as an adult or redefining your relationship with your parents or siblings as you get older. Then the mind shit is everything that goes into mental health. It's the longest of all of the sections, has the most chapters as 30, and it's depression, anxiety, overthinking, just everything that happens in your mind is written in here. And then life is uh, all the stuff that we encounter in life, all the stuff that comes up daily, like protecting your privacy online, figuring out how to travel, traveling alone, um, asking the right questions as an adult, um, not putting so much weight on stuff and more on experiences and memories. So many things that just come up in life and we're like, uh, I don't know how to vote. I don't know how to donate to a charity, just like all this stuff that comes up. Because it is semi-autobiographical, isn't it, the book? Oh, it's very autobiographical. So um, yes, it started during quarantine. It was a lot of things I was pondering during quarantine. And it was mostly because we had the time and we were having conversations with people that we didn't have before. Like we, we were confronted with the anxiety of being at home and people lost jobs and needed to figure out savings and health insurance and stuff by themselves. People were put into relationship scenarios, like learning how to fight or uh, figuring out the speed of our relationship at a speed that like was never meant to happen. And we were all just confronted with scenarios. And when we started talking to our friends about them, it was like, oh, okay, so no one knows this. Um, and then yes, in terms of the education system, I almost got like a little bit mad because it's not that I stumbled my way through adulthood. I did, but it's not that I like stumbled so hard that I fell and I was just upset that nobody was there to catch me. It was more that I spent so many hours in a classroom learning algebra and pre-calculus and never used that. And nobody taught me what a high yield savings account was or how to invest properly into the stock market. Like that would have been way more useful for me in my future than figuring out like X equals Y or whatever. Uh, obviously it didn't stick. So, and then the chemistry, like I spent a lot of time learning the periodic table and nobody ever taught me the chemistry of my own brain, how to deal with depression, anxiety. I mean, I learned a lot about running. I feel like every year we had to run a track a lot. Nobody ever talked to us about mental health. And it seems very strange because I did have a mental health class and it was a textbook and they were like, you read from this textbook and that's it. But nobody talks to each other. No, and, and of course, it's like middle school and high school when all of this is just starting to come up. So if it's not relevant and it doesn't look exactly like it does in the textbook, you don't think it's you. And so I wrote 
from a, a whole array of variety of experiences that I've had. And so in that way, yes, it is autobiographical. Relationships are based on relationships I've had or friends have had or family has had. Mental health, I haven't experienced every uh, side of mental health myself, but I do have friends who have. And so having these discussions, I also, it's highly researched and it's talked to uh, a lot of professionals along the way. So there are quotes in there from fantastic authors. And I do have to reiterate that it's not a preachy book by any means. It's definitely a book that says, these are my experiences, but here are some tips that can help anybody in any similar type of situation. So I think that's really a good thing to point out. And I'm sort of struck by I don't know if you get told this, but you feel I feel like you're beyond your years in many ways for someone as young as you to have had so many incredible experiences that people who are many, many years older than you, myself, I'm talking about, who could look back at this and really relate to, gosh, wouldn't that have been nice? And I think where the synergy for me in Elevate lied, really particularly while I was reading this, is I have spent many years in the teaching field and the classrooms in schools and spent quarantine and COVID as a year where I did do a very similar thing in reflecting what is missing in school? What is it that we're not giving to young people to equip them for life? Now, not I didn't really go into the 401k or anything like that, but one of the five superpowers that I developed, which I think is what I thought was really great about your book, is there are certain elements that no amount of formal education can give you. And that goes back to the whole idea of lived experiences, shared experiences, learning through stories, learning through podcasts. I genuinely started this podcast only because of how much time I spent in, in my year of living on my own in Singapore uh, with my family, but not working at the first year, um, learning and listening and unlearning of my, about my pre-conscious and subconscious biases and just things that I hadn't quite really realized and I was I realized I was programmed through formal education just to think certain things had to happen a certain way and I think your book brings so much of that to light and helps you almost unpack why why do we sit in school for all these hours and never really understand the importance of the brain I would love to know that I would love to know the answer to that. I mean, so just going back for a second, I think, yes, that is the whole reason that it isn't preachy is when I was writing it, the like through line of this book was, I'm not special. There is nothing about me that makes my life, my circumstances unique to me and no one else. Everything I've experienced, everyone else has experienced. Everything I've struggled with, other people have struggled with. I'm just sharing my experiences. But with that said, like, yeah, there's... I understand a lot of people look at me and they're like, why did you write a book about your life? You've like, I'm 32. And they're like, you're, you're barely alive. Um, <laughs> but all I will, all I will say is I don't think the things in this book have a demographic of an age. You're reading the mental health scenarios from your mindset today. And then you're in a totally different headspace in two or three weeks. And you're going to read that chapter from that headspace. So I don't think that there's, like you said, it's not a linear book. It's not a love story or a novel that you have to read cover to cover. You read the chapters that apply to you today. You put it on a shelf. You forget about it. You come back to it in a few months and you pick it up again. So it rings true for me as well. When I work with my girls, I often find the moms or the dads who are there for the journey often say, oh, I should apply that to my own way of thinking. I should definitely be using some. So I think there are things that generally principles around things, which I want to get into now around failure, if you wouldn't mind, because I think normalizing normal things and 
allowing to share normal life is actually what makes it so relatable and why I think this book should. So I know I'm going on about it, but I do think this book is, is helpful for young people and elderly people as well. So I wanted to go back to the dedication page of your book. I love the fact that you show uh, such lovely gratitude to your parents. Note to my own children, I hope you do that too one day. But um, no, just... <laughs> just saying it's so sweet to read I love I love seeing that um, but you point out the very fact that you owe the internet and your personal life failures thanks as they taught you so much I'm interested in both of these areas for young people because obviously people of my generation going back to the whole idea of the elderly generation we had it very different I mean it was almost a non-existent relationship with the internet because it wasn't there for us until we became adults ourselves so I wonder with relationship for young teens and failure, what it's like now in this curated world of unattainable ideals and these perceptions of a perfect life, especially for young girls with a propensity towards perfectionist tendencies. I know you can only speak for your own personal experiences. So I know I'm not asking you to, to talk to the whole public, but I do wonder how you feel young people of today regard the internet and failure. And in many cases, how is the relationship they have with each other related? Oh boy. Okay. That is probably the best question I've ever gotten in a podcast. That's incredible. And there's so many things that I want to answer about it. So I'm going to start with, so my parents gave me a fantastic upbringing and education system. And then the internet filled in those gaps. And I'm fortunate enough that the internet was available for my middle school and high school days. But then I can also speak to the detriment that has that generation of the internet is the reason we stopped asking questions to each other. Like at some point, most people stop asking questions and that's, you know, regardless of age or upbringing or demographic in any way, including area, some point people stop asking questions to each other because there's an expectation and I don't know where it comes from in society. You're just supposed to know it. Like you're just supposed to reach an age and it's like, ding, ding, ding. I know everything. And that's not real. And so we stop asking questions, which is insane to me. And we start asking Google. And unfortunately, you know, Google can't tell you what anxiety feels like for you. But your friend can tell a story and you could be like, wait, I relate to that. That might be what I'm going through. Like Google is never going to tell you how to get over that heartbreak. But a friend who supports you and is your community or family member, they are going to help you. And so that is the main lesson is I encourage people to have that community and support system because the internet is ruthless and it makes you think you're failing constantly. You're not failing constantly. Just the internet isn't real. Like everything you see on social media is everybody's best day and you are comparing your worst moments to their best day. And when people, even when people are real, they're real to an extent like no one is going to show you the worst parts of their brain on social media because they can't. By the time it's filtered through their thought process and come out on social media, they've processed some of it. So they're going to not show it in the way that is as raw in their brain. So if you are able to talk to a friend as they're struggling and processing things on their own and working through something, that may in turn help you when you reach a point that you need help like that. So there's failure in the sense of like, like what we thought of as kids. And then there's failure in today's society, which is if you aren't as perfect as the internet makes you think you should be, you have already failed. And the thing is, you've only failed in that person's life because you aren't them. Like you're comparing yourself to a totally different person 
And so, yeah, you failed at being that person. I'm sorry. Like I fail at being Jennifer Aniston every day because I'm not her. <laughs> and how I wish we could be. Um, yeah, amazing. Right? Um, oh, I love her. It really rings true. And I think the reason that really wanted, I really wanted to ask you that question as, as you're a millennial, I would say you're gen. No, yeah. Yeah. I'm 32. So yeah. yeah millennial. Just, just about, just about. I don't love the name, but it's yeah, okay. <laughs> fair enough. But for your group of people, it can't be easy. And I didn't have it from such a young age. And I remember thinking as a new mom, when I had watched several videos of women saying, oh, I just gave birth and look at me, I'm in my old jeans. So when I couldn't get into my old jeans six weeks after I gave birth, I did feel like a failure. And I remember thinking really badly of myself that I obviously not exercising enough. And which crazy person allows you to believe that? But your own, your own mind, your own brain, that that is something. Everyone believes that. But even beyond the, I saw a video of someone who just gave birth six weeks later and now looks amazing in jeans. This generation just stops at, I just saw a video of a girl who just gave birth. And it's like, oh, so, okay, this girl's my age and she seems really successful online and she just had a baby. Should I have a baby? Seems like she can do it. Should I do it? And it's beyond the things of like what we dealt with, which was, oh, I need to, you know, diet and exercise and things. That's where it started. And now people are making giant life decisions because you're not seeing all of your peers at a high school reunion every five years anymore. You're seeing them every five minutes and you're comparing your life being like, I grew up next to that person. And now they have three kids in a house and they live in the mountains. Should I go have a bunch of kids and live in the mountains? Like you start comparing your life to people that aren't even celebrities. They're people you knew, but it's because you are unfiltered with constant information of people at one point that were in your life. And it's again, not your life. It's their life. Yeah, it's such powerful messaging and so important for us to keep reminding ourselves that I think it's incredibly pertinent to young people who get sort of indoctrinated quite quickly, I think, by the way of thinking what what life should look like. And I think that is the, the reframing of everything shouldn't be one way. Everyone should be living, like you said, a unique life, even if it is, uh, yeah, if it is your own journey at your own And it's hard for kids because when you're a kid, like I would hear about parties or something like so-and-so's birthday party and be like, oh, I didn't get invited. And it would fade away in a few days. But if then you're constantly seeing photos of the birthday party you weren't invited to, and then the people from the birthday party go to a picnic and like, it just spirals and you're constantly reminded of being left out. That is going to cause a lot of mental illness problems later on. And if then in turn, we're never taught the coping mechanisms of handling when those depression, anxiety symptoms show up, then we got hit on both sides. <laughs> totally. Yeah. That FOMO thing is so real. That fear of missing out becomes amplified with the internet. It becomes horrible. I've witnessed it firsthand as a, as a mom. I've witnessed it as a teacher. It's, it's absolutely something that I so grateful that I didn't have as a kid you definitely go through moments of feeling lonely and left out or excluded but like you say it's not in your face and it, and it can have a very strong knock-on effect on your self-esteem and confidence 
which is one of the reasons that Elevate created a whole module on confidence and self-growth and, and growth mindset, which I think is so important. And I think you, you speak a lot about that in, in, the, in the section called the mind shit. I love it. I love the way you've done that. Now, obviously, you've, uh, going back to the book, you've written it from a Western US-based perspective, but there is so much that I do think that can be applied to young people living anywhere in the world. Um, I'm curious, though, was it, A, first of all, a bit of a challenge for you to get all the right nuances and the right uh, places to go get exact details? Because you go into quite like detailed minutia of, of exactly which organization to, to look up and how to get in touch with certain people and how to find the answers to some of these very bizarre questions that we have to face when we when we go out into the real world. But if there's if there's anyone listening to this who's not growing up into the in growing up in the US, would you be able to direct them to any ways of looking for parallel organizations that wouldn't be fraudulent? Yeah. So mostly it's the career and money section that helps with that portion. So the career and money of course handles taxes from a US standpoint. It handles uh, retirement funds like 401ks and IRAs, which are based in the US. And then as we get into the life section, there's like charity and voting and those things are US based. But of the 98 chapters, I think only six or seven of them are strictly US based. There's a lot of content in the career and money section that even within the US, some people are unsure of like a 401k is only relevant if you're at a company that offers it but if you are freelance that's not an option for you if you're unemployed that is not an option for you if you're already retired or you're already working towards that retirement 401k max out isn't going to be enough for you that's not an option for you so there are things in the book where uh, I do checklists at the end of about half of the chapters and I'm like, okay, so here are the steps now because for me, like when I read a self-help book and I put it down and I'm like, fantastic, I'm like a changed person. I've read a book and then I immediately go back to living my life the same way. So I put a checklist at the end of about half the chapters. So you don't do that and you actually go and do the stuff. And in the chapters that have things that could be more limiting, I put other options. And I, I also do that for like the mind and relationship stuff as well. Thank you. Yeah, it was very thoughtfully written. I thought that might be a helpful point for anyone on this side of the world that might want to pick up the book and find similar resources. So thank you for sharing that. I'm going to read a passage from your book aloud now. Is that okay with you? I know some yeah. people find it. Okay, cool. I know some people find it a bit nerve wracking. Here it is. And I think this will be a really great insight to, for listeners to get into the, your style of writing as well, which is really, as you say, witty and fun. Fairy tales suck. Every fairy tale should have to come with the same disclaimer as true crime reenactments. This is a dramatization. Love doesn't happen that way at all. Here's how fairy tales work. You find someone, you fall in love, and you live happily ever after. Now, in that bullshit, does it mention the courage and the empathy it takes to fall in love? Even the phrase, fall in love, sounds like it's something that happens to you. Like, oops, I tripped on the sidewalk and I fell in love. Nope, sorry, love is a choice. It's waking up each day and choosing the person next to you despite your mood, your infatuation level with them, or how stinky their breath is. Now, I love this because you then, as you said just a few minutes ago, get into my beautiful life guru, Esther Perel, who, as you mentioned, is a badass psychotherapist and a genius author. And she said in one of her TED Talks that love is a verb. It's an active engagement with 
all kinds of feelings, positive ones and primitive ones and loathsome ones, but it's a very active verb. And it's often surprising how kind of an ebb and flow, it's like the moon, we think it's disappeared and suddenly it shows up again. It's not a permanent state of enthusiasm. So I love this, everything you say, and then you go on to say that you believe 100% in Esther Perel's belief and that you believe that love is active. So you then encourage your readers to be brave, take the leap. If you found a person you feel courageous enough to let love you, you love them and fucking go for it. I really do think that the old cliche that it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all is true. It means that you took a risk. You opened yourself up to a possibility of something wonderfully magical. And even if it didn't work out, you grew from it. You now know how great it feels to be in love and to be vulnerable and open with another person. You've proven to yourself that you can love and be loved. Just like the moon, your chance will come around again. When it comes to love, there's really only one thing you can do. Love fearlessly. Okay, you're reading the audiobook because that accent, it sounds so much better than my own. <laughs> really? I'm like, that's even better than how it sounds in my head when I'm writing it. You're doing everything from now on. <laughs> oh, well, thanks, Natasha. No, but that, it genuinely spoke to me. I thought it was just beautiful. Thank you for letting me read that out loud and sharing that with my listeners. I think it, I think it's splendid. And I also think like most of us, we all adore Esther Perel. And I wish I could keep her in my back pocket, but this type of advice that you've given, I wanted to ask you at what age you were and what age you think love can be felt and experienced. Because I often, or do you agree with me that I often think that teens get dismissed when they face heartache because adults around them might think, oh, it's only puppy love. They're just kids. They don't know what they're talking about. But you know, it's just not a big a deal as when you fall in love with someone when you're much, much older. And I wonder if you might have thoughts on that or agree or disagree. I do. So I think that it's not about age. It's about how much of you is in that relationship and how much of you is in that love. So I think we dismiss puppy love because these teens get lost in A, emotions, and B, the other person. Their entire relationship is about what does that person think about me? Does that person like me? Do they love me? Do they want to be with me forever? Like, what are these thoughts? And we get so lost in the emotions that we're feeling that we forget to check in and be like, well, what am I thinking? Where, where am I in this relationship? And I'm not saying that strictly teens. I'm saying people do that for a long time. It can be really, really hard to, to track your feelings as a teenager, because when you're 14, 15, 16, so much is going on in your life that it's basically impossible to know what's real. And I talk about lust and limerence and infatuation in the book. And there's guidelines to be like, is this love or is this a little bit of something else? And I talk about like, you want a lasting fireplace kind of fire. You don't want a firework that burns out instantly. And if you're feeling like this is a huge firework, it sparks and, you know, I see a firework kind of colors and everything. Fireworks fade very, very quickly. So what's standing after it fades? And that's the easier way to tell. I don't know if there was an age. I think when I was a teenager, I thought I was in love with pretty much everybody who liked me. And then when I grew up, I realized I never checked in with what I was thinking or feeling in those. It was more just like, oh my goodness, they like me. That's enough. And that's really, that's as far as it goes, I think, for a lot of people. I really like that. 
idea of taking away the, the number, the age has nothing to do with it, because some of our peers in adult life can act like some of our teen children. So, you know, there's, I think, I think there is parallel in understanding your own relationship with yourself before you start to love others. And that is a huge part of what I try and do at Elevate is getting the girls I work with to love themselves. And I do agree with what you say in terms of uh, the responsibility fairy tales should take for young girls uh, or young boys even. And for me, I blame rom-coms and Bollywood films. I grew up on them and that's just not real life. And I think it's not in the, the credits roll before they even have their first fight. And it's like, that's not real. And Bollywood films in particular, it's like everything's so cheerful. If your life doesn't look as colorful and happy all the time, there's something wrong with your relationship. And then you feel like you've got to leave because it's not that. And no, relationships are work. I know they're not just song and dance in front of a wonderful backdrop, which is a lot of Bollywood films. <laughs> I think they, they do get like that. I don't know what your relationship with films is like, but do you feel that they're doing a better job and a more fair job these days? I do, but I also think there's more content now. So it's hard to to compare them because a long time ago we would look at you know two three movies a year that had those messages and then we would think about them for a long time and now we're inundated with content all the time that it's hard to sift through yeah there can be really really meaningful ones that tell a great story and then there can be you know movies that are just for the show and the beauty of the colors and those are of equal value and weight to the subscriber to the streaming service or however you're watching it so they're going to advertise it all the same and nothing is going to get the bigger weight of what's a better story so let's go from falling in love to losing relationships uh, which I'm going to put friendships in this category for young teens as well, who change schools, or they move around a lot, or particularly during COVID, um, to just lose people in their lives because of job loss or whatever else is going around in, in the world for them and their families at that time. And sometimes it's just because people have grown apart. You know, people grow, they evolve, they change. And you mentioned that mourning the loss of these relationships is a way to recognize, in your own words, that quote, the bang up incredible person you are today is because of these experiences. You're not a failure. Neither are the relationships that led you to become this person. You're amazing, no matter how many relationships you've walked away from or have ended. The most important relationship you have is with you. That one, I guarantee, lasts a lifetime. This could not be more aligned with the mentoring and teaching I do with the girls I work with. So tell me how you feel nurturing the relationship with yourself uh, can be seen as the most important one for our young folks. And is it hard as an adult to live by this understanding? Have you got any yeah. tips for us? Yeah, tell us. I mean, of course it's hard because you're the most critical of yourself that anybody around you could be. And you're you're going to see yourself through a lens that no one else is looking through. But I think you have to work on you in order to relate to anyone else or to have other relationships be sustainable in your life. And like I said, you spend the most amount of time with you. You're, you're going to listen to your thoughts more than you're ever going to listen to anyone else speak. You're going to spend more time with yourself and your thoughts than anyone else. So your opinions are the ones that matter the most. Your feelings are the ones that matter the most. Your your experiences, everything is going to be amplified because it's it's you that you're gonna you're gonna be with forever. 
Yeah, it's so important. And did you find that hard for yourself, if you don't mind sharing a little bit of that? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's still hard. It's hard all of the time. I don't think we're ever done. I don't think you ever reach a point where you're just like, fantastic, I'm done growing. Um, I think I'm a work in progress forever. And I hope I am. Because if I'm ever done, then it's like, well, I guess that's life. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So then leading on to this idea around being friends, well, I think being friends with yourself is really important, like we just said. But then also, I love the fact that you touch on the idea of being friends with unexpected people. And you rightly mentioned in middle school that hobbies and social circles tend to segregate us. And by high school, our core group of friends often looks like and thinks very similar to the way that we do. So we all grow up together and we never really have new ideas or new ideals for ourselves because that's just the people you've decided to surround yourself with which you then point out rightfully that it's no fun in that and you should be friends with people other than the people who have interests that are similar to yours. What I wanted to really ask you about this is, did you mean this for adults more than you did for children? Or do you think it could apply to young people who find stepping out of one friendship zone, uh, friendship comfort zone to another quite scary? Well, yes, because think about when you learn how to make friends. You think, like, I learned how to make friends probably the second I entered a a classroom. And it was, at the beginning, it's who's going to share their crayons with me and who's going to let me sit at their table. And then it slowly grows into a filtering of some sort. And so when, by the time you reach adulthood, if you've done so much filtering as a kid, that's a routine of yours. So yeah, it's important for adults, but I think it's actually more important for kids. and. And for adults, the, the, I don't mean to keep like bashing social media and the internet, but it does seem like a really easy target is it, there's algorithms now and they're filtering things based on what you like and who your friends are and they can see what your friends are liking. And so they're going to filter things, assuming if, you know, 60% of your friends all like this one thing, they're going to start showing you that one thing because they think that you're probably aligned with your friends. So diversify yourself so that you're not getting all the same information, all the same experiences. And when you're a kid, it's the same. You're going to grow up with the knowledge of the people around you because they're the ones that are informing your knowledge base. And then you're also formulating how you make friends. You can formulate this all-encompassing, I want to be friends with everyone mentality when you're like 11 and you're able to cultivate that and actually keep it into adulthood you're going to be such an interesting person and everyone's just going to like flock to you. The energy you're going to give off is going to be incredible. That really leads beautifully into the idea of cultivating the superpower of empathy, because the more people you decide to listen to be part of their social circles with your idea of being able to listen actively grows naturally. And and you develop a huge amount of perspective on different cultures, different types of people's way of thinking and you're maybe not limiting yourself to heartache and friendship loss. So when your BFF dumps you, it's maybe not the hardest thing in the world if you try and have other groups of people that you find yourself in. And I- Well, it has to, it has to grow, right? Like the more you expand your universe, the more you're expanding what you're attracted to and what attracts to you. And so there's never, you're never going to be able to go backwards. Like once you know things, you can't unknow things. So if you expand your universe, you expand the type of people that you get along with, you can never go back into a little bubble. It won't work. 
I really hope anyone, young people listening to this will take heart in this because I have to tell you, Natasha, one of the most common things that comes up in all my lessons is the fear of rejection, of trying to make a different friendship group. The angst that comes with, like you said, when you're little, there's no fear in asking, hey, can I borrow that crayon? And then you're playing at break. The next thing you know, you're at each other's house for a play date and it goes beautifully from there when you're five or six. But something in adolescence, when you're growing through all that change and your self-confidence and self-esteem is starting to be judged by you first, your own critic, and then you start to assume that you're not being validated by other people if they don't include you in their social circles. So putting yourself out there is really scary. Do you have any advice for young girls that I work with that could take some comfort? 100% I do. Okay, there's a few things. First okay, of all, go for it. nobody around you is thinking or noticing all the things that you are thinking they are noticing about you. Every time I was a kid and I was standing around the Cooper girls, I'd be like, oh my God, they can see how wrinkly my shirt is and how stupid these shoes are. They can see that pimple on my face. I promise you, they aren't noticing or thinking about that because they're so focused on themselves and in their own head, they're doing exactly what you're doing right now. So you're focusing on your pimple and your flyaway hairs. They're focusing on their dead ends and their bad shirt. And no, everybody's just standing around being insecure together, thinking we're all judging each other. We're really, we're just judging ourselves. The second thing, go up and make a friend because the moment you're in, you have say you're 16. This year is only one sixteenth of your life. So it feels really heavy and important. And I promise you when you go up, if they reject you, if they don't, if they're not your people, if they're not right, it's not a good fit. It's not personal. And you're exactly where you are right now. So why not take the risk, right? Like if you're standing here being like, I wonder what that's going to be like, I just shouldn't do it. Well, if you walk up to them and they say, yeah, no, we're not interested then you're going to walk back over here and you're going to stay exactly in the same spot you're standing right now. But I promise you when it's at one thirty second of your life where I'm at now, you will barely remember the moment that, that happened when you were 16 because you will have double the amount of time and double the amount of experiences that dilute what you think is a big deal right now because there's going to be so many other moments just like it. So just get past it. And then once you've got the skills and you're like, hey, that worked with that one group, I'm going to try it again over here. And it starts to work. Then you just have a system. And now you've got a whole bunch of friends and just got to make them. I really appreciate you sharing that. I think hearing it from someone other than your parents sometimes or your teachers is so important. So having your voice will be really, really helpful. Thank you. So let's then talk a little bit about the mental health stuff that we did mention a little bit earlier, but you mentioned that the stigma around, I really wanted to touch on this particular section of the book, because I think, again, in the work that I'm doing, this word could be used a bit more loosely than it maybe needs to be, which is the word depression. You say that we are giving it not the right importance or the amount of weight. And I think young people are probably prone to this and do throw around terms like anxiety and depression, and they may not act be depicting the emotions of consequently making other people who might be suffering with an actual diagnosis of those terms feel valued and I wondered if you had any ways that we could possibly and so my way of combating that is to give a whole chapter module in my in my session on emotional intelligence and finding the right feeling words because I think that we don't equip young people with other words than I'm so depressed or I'm so sad other than saying maybe you're disappointed maybe you're irritated maybe you're frustrated 
So I think anxiety and depression used to be really stigmatized still to some extent, but it used to be, if you said you were depressed, people were like, Oh my God, what's wrong with you? Like why your life is great from the outside. You're fine. Uh, or you were like stuck in an asylum in their head and they, they just assumed that you were going to get, you know, committed somewhere. So that used to be the stigma that people had. And now it's gone pendulum swing the other way because, you know, we're obsessed with everything. Like I see a shirt and I see people be like, oh my God, I'm obsessed with your shirt. And I'm like, you're not obsessed with it. In two minutes, you're going to forget about the shirt. You might buy it and then, but you're not obsessed with it. And so depression happened the same way. It's like uh, a TV show would end and you'd be like, oh, I'm so depressed. The show ended. No, you're not. But if you just said that you were depressed to a friend of yours, and they're looking for somebody to talk to about the feelings that they're having and thinking that they might have depression. You just wrote yourself off. So they know that now they can't talk to you about it. You're no longer the person that they can come to if they need somebody because you just showed your cards as somebody who doesn't think depression is like a serious thing or they're, you're just going to like make a joke about it. So just being conscious of it. Yeah. You got to find the right words, but like Saying something makes you super anxious to someone who has very strong anxiety, they're going to be like, well, I can't really talk about my anxiety to this person then because they're going to think like I'm extremely anxious and they're not going to know how to handle it. So like, it makes people retreat away from you and you don't know what all your friends are feeling or thinking. So you may accidentally say it and in their head, they just clicked off of you a little bit. They just distance themselves just a tiny bit because they're afraid to open up to you. And so if you just keep yourself conscious of the things you're saying in those ways, it's so much easier to just filter yourself than have to apologize for it later. Again, I'm so struck by your wisdom at such a young age, Natasha. That's really, really, really important. Now, I, I think that kind of perspective is hard for many adults to have. So I'm really grateful that you've put that out there and something for us is to really give people that opportunity to be mindful around how they're using the words that they choose and how that might come across to other people. It's a We're definitely at a crux in the, in the world right now around appropriate language anyway. So I think this is a, a really good reminder for us to, to self-check some of the vocabulary that we've got in our heads. If you used to say like, oh, that's gay, and what you really meant was like, oh, that's stupid or I don't like it. And your friend is in the closet and waiting to come out. Now they're not coming out to you. And it's the same thing. That's essentially what we're setting ourselves up for with mental illness. Absolutely brilliant. I think that's so important. So let me, I, we're coming close to the end of our interview. And I always loved en ending my interviews with the same few questions, which one of them is, who are your role models and why? And have they changed from when you were little to, well, younger to where you are now? My role models change like every day. Um, <laughs> I I think okay, my role models right like. So who is it today? Who is it? Is it Jennifer Aniston? Well, it's yeah, always. <laughs> Top is always like my mom, Jennifer Aniston, Oprah. Like they just stay up there. But um, I'm constantly I'm constantly with like like Malala Yousaf. I just got this book from the library. Nadia Murad's book, The Last Girl. So uh, her story is incredibly strong. And um, role models it, for me are people who maybe you don't even know, but are people who keep me inspired and keep me motivated. And 
I think that has to be individual for everybody, but a role model by definition is somebody that roll, you want to roll your life. Like, <laughs> I don't know the right way to say it because it's like late here, but um, yeah, I'm trying to articulate it, but it's, it's essentially you want this person not on a pedestal, but within a tangible, reachable distance from you. And so like, I'm never going to be Oprah. That's fine. But I want it to be somebody that I'm like, oh, that's an attainable version. So then it motivates you to keep going. Totally. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you there with Oprah, with Jennifer Aniston and, and mom. Yeah, all of them. 100% back that one up as constants. And then, of course, having evolving role models is a wonderful way to look at how you can continually keep yourself driven. So I think that's that's a really nice thing to share. Thank you for that. What advice would you give your teen self knowing what you know now? Which I think you've given a lot of that in the book. But is there one <laughs> particular thing? Like 98 different things? Um, <laughs> I would tell them the 16, 15, 17 year old me to trust my gut before I trust other people's opinions. Because there were a lot of decisions that I made in my younger years that were based on how other people would perceive me and not what I was thinking of me. So important. I love that. And so what's next for you, Natasha? Are you going to continue to write more books? Are you inspired to keep going with the writing? Yeah. Yeah, I am inspired. Um, I find writing a second book is hard. So the first one flowed out of me. The second one, I feel like I put a lot into the first one that I don't want to be redundant and say the same stuff. So this has been challenging, but yeah, I think I'll keep writing. Given, given how young you are, I think you've got lots of time to let that story come out whenever it's ready to. So, so we'll be waiting for it when it does. In the meantime, listeners, do get yourselves a copy of Shit That Adults Never Taught Us. Tell us where we can buy it, uh, Natasha, and how we can, if people wanted to get in touch with you, what they could do. Yeah, so Shit Adults Never Taught Us is on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, Google Play Books. It is global. It does not matter where you live. You can download it anywhere. Um, I'm also on Instagram at Shit Adults Never Taught Us, and you can email me shitadultsnevertaughtus at gmail.com. If you're reading the book and you have questions that go beyond a certain chapter, you just want to clarify something, send me an email. I will always talk to people. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, Natasha got in touch with me. Um, I think we met through social media. It's brilliant. I will link all the information that Natasha's just mentioned into the show notes. Get your hands on the book. You won't regret it. It will be something you will look to as a helpful guide over and over again. Thank you, Natasha, so much for putting all that work into it and helping us have this amazing resource. And I really appreciate your time on coming onto the Elevate podcast. Thank you. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from The Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.